a reskilled workforce and a continuing move towards a digital future, those are among the strategic imperatives laid out by the government publishing office. GPO's new five-year plan has a theme, America Informed. Here with the details, GPO Director Hugh Halpern. Mr. Halpern, good to have you back. Hey, Tom. It's always good to be back. So a new five-year plan that seems to build pretty closely with what GPO has been doing for the last several years, last maybe decade or so. Tell us more about the new plan for 23 and beyond. Absolutely. We're really excited about the opportunities presented by this sort of check-in. And, well, the last strategic plan was really about moving from the print-centric past to what was then the digital future. But that digital future is now our present. So this is all about how we structure ourselves and how we focus on satisfying our customers in this new digital environment and being comfortable in that environment. And that idea of informing America implies maybe an expansion of something that GPO has always had, which is the system of getting federally related documents out to the public wherever it may be beyond simply printing Congress's own business. And so what are the plans to, again, in the current digital state to update what used to be the library system? Absolutely. You know, our vision of an America informed is really centered around this concept that Americans and folks who may not be Americans need to know what our government's doing. And part of that is their role in a democracy. If you don't know what your government's doing, you can't make informed decisions about who your leaders should be. Similarly, our government does a lot of stuff. And making sure that that information about what the government is doing is available is really important for all of our patrons. You know, one of the things that's going on right now that I'm looking forward to hearing about from our library community is a decision as to whether the Federal Depository Library Program should move to an all-digital model or a mostly digital model. And we've really assembled a great group of folks both from the academic world, from sort of the rank and file libraries out in communities to other government librarians to put their heads together and make some recommendations by the end of the year as to what that looks like. This is all part of us moving forward, like I said, realizing what our digital present is and producing the kinds of products and providing the kind of information that folks need in that digital environment. And just on that library point, I saw a documentary recently on the new way that libraries in general are modeling themselves, community centers, and there's coffee shops in them. And it's all digital. I mean, there's books, but it's mostly digital. And it's a gathering place for people. You can almost imagine a GPO kiosk or workstation in that way that the depository library could be anywhere there's a library now. Oh, absolutely. You know, govinfo.gov, which is our trusted digital repository where we provide all of this information to our users and frankly, to a lot of other customers. So if you go to congress.gov and you're looking for congressional information, they're using a lot of data that we're providing through GovInfo. There are other sites that are doing the same kind of thing. You know, I got to tell you a funny story. So when I was in the confirmation process for this job, I had to track down some paper I had written in college. So I returned to the campus of American University and was trying to track this thing down and went to the library where I spent countless hours as an undergrad and grad student. 
And I walked in the front door and my immediate reaction was, where'd all the books go? Yeah, the floor plan is a lot more open. There's a lot more in terms of collaboration space and things like that, that you're going to find in a modern library that's very different from when I went to college 30 years ago. And we're working very closely with our library partners to make sure we're providing documents and formats that make sense for them. And, you know, we're looking at things from all sorts of different angles, whether more print on demand makes more sense, or we still need a subset of printed documents, or we can move 100% digital. So I'm really looking forward to the recommendations that this task force is going to come back with so we can figure out what that part of our operations looks like going forward. We're speaking with Hugh Halpern, director of the government publishing office. And let's talk about the workforce for a moment, because going from bookbinding to that digital-oriented workforce is a long journey. In some sense, every agency is going through something similar. But yet at the same time, there are certain crafts that now, small as they might be, nevertheless need to be preserved for a long time. Tell us about some of the workforce initiatives under the strategic vision. Absolutely. So as I've talked about in the past, GPO actually faces a real problem that almost 50% of our teammates will be eligible to retire within the next five years. That doesn't mean they all will. And hopefully a lot of them are going to stay with us for uh, a good long time. It's not unusual here at GPO to have teammates who work here for 25, 30, even 40 years. So, you know, we want to make sure though, as our teammates decide to take their well-earned retirements, that we are able to make sure we've got a workforce that can fill that gap going forward. So we've done a lot of different things, like we've restarted our apprenticeship program. We've started with proofreaders and keyboard operators, but we hope to expand that program to include other trades next year, whether that's press people, bookbinders, or some of the more traditional trades like carpenters and electricians. We're also looking at creating new positions, such as our new production technician position for our passport operators, where they're not quite full-fledged bookbinders, but there's a path where we can hire folks who have some technical aptitude, whether they develop that in high school or working in another manufacturing environment, and give them the kind of on-the-job training that they need to eventually reach that status where they are full-fledged bookbinders and able to run all of the equipment in our passport production operation. And, you know, it's not just sort of those traditional trades as well. It's making sure that our environment is welcoming and really brings in folks, even in our more uh, knowledge worker jobs. So, Right now, the agency, about two-thirds of our folks are more production, more blue-collar employees, whereas the other third are more knowledge workers. But with our government-leading telework and remote work policies, we've actually been able to attract a lot of folks to GPO. You know, one example in our human capital area is we had an employee who left us a few years ago for another opportunity. But because our telework and remote work policies are so progressive, she actually came back because it worked better for her and her family. Similarly, we've been working on hiring a new superintendent of documents, one of our senior executive team folks. And the fact that we've got a very progressive remote work policy has really expanded 
the pool of applicants we could look at for that role as well. So it's something that I think is going to set us up really well for the future. And the workforce seems to undergird another area that is mentioned in the plan, which is explore expansion of agency products and services. That is to maybe maintain that vertical integration because of supply chain uncertainties and the vicissitudes of the external contractor market. Absolutely. So there are a lot of things that GPO has traditionally done that we're going to continue to do. You know, we do most of Congress's work here in our plant. But for a lot of the executive branch work, we work with thousands of independent print shops and factories all across the country. The fact of the matter is, though, that the print industry is a little bit in a realignment. They're facing some of the same supply constraints that we do, but they're reacting differently. They're looking at different kinds of work and things like that. And sometimes they're no longer able to meet the needs of our federal customers. So in those cases, we're looking for opportunities to bring that work back to GPO or figure out alternatives for them. Similarly, we're looking at providing totally new opportunities for our federal customers. So for instance, one of the things that I would like to see GPO really get into is providing good document creation services for our customers. So for instance, if Congress says to the EPA or any agency, hey, you have to produce this annual report for us. Well, GPO can help those agencies by constructing a template for Word or whatever word processor they're using. And they can create that content using that template. We can ingest that template and then produce perfectly typeset output along with good machine-readable code that can easily be transferred to the web and provide that information in a way that folks, whether they're in a library or just out in the hinterlands, can find that information, reuse it, and, and use it in a way that makes sense for them. And finally, here's a double question in some ways. Do you get much guidance from Congress? Do they pay attention to GPO or do they take it for granted? And that relates to one of your ideas of becoming financially stable that's stated in the strategic report. That has a lot to do with Congress also. They're also the main customer. And of course, they still produce PDFs of thousand page bills that are not searchable, not linkable, not anythingable. So we have great support from our congressional oversight folks, both on the authorizing and the appropriating side, and they've been real important supporters for us. So Congress, I always talk about Congress as being our most important customer, because in addition to being a customer, they're our boss, but they're not our largest customer. Our largest customer is the Department of State, largely because of the work we do on passports. But that said, we are working very closely with Congress to try and improve the quality of the documents that Congress produces. And again, it sort of ties in with my earlier example, because we want those staff attorneys, those members of Congress, really focused on what that content is, writing that committee report, writing that bill, rather than struggling to work through formatting issues. So You know, our new composition engine, XPUB, we will be done with our work, hopefully uh, before the end of the fiscal year. And hopefully Congress will be ready by the end of this year, beginning of next, to start 
integrating that into their operations. And that's going to provide some real tangible benefits to folks on the other side. So for instance, if you look at the plain text display of a bill today, I think the polite way I can put that is it's garbage. It's hard to use. It's hard to repurpose and not terribly useful. And I say that as somebody who used that display all the time when I was on the Hill. Now, when XPub comes online, we'll be able to produce a good, responsive HTML display that'll look good on your phone, on your tablet, or on your computer. Plus, you can cut, copy, and paste that information into your word processor. So if you're working on a bill with somebody on the Hill, it becomes much easier to engage in the kind of collaboration that folks have come to expect. So XPub is a content creation platform for the legislative process. Would that be a good way to describe it? It's actually GPO's composition engine. So the way I've described it is GPO sort of owns the software stack that Congress uses to print. So when they hit control P, our software takes over. And the software that controls that is about 40 years old. Same software that they're using today. This new product will replace that. It's very long in the tooth. It's well overdue, but is really the key to us delivering a lot of new products over the next decade and beyond. And there has been a select committee on the modernization of Congress, and they're looking across many, many things, but including that whole issue. Have you been in touch with them and have they included GPO in their deliberations? Absolutely. We've been talking a lot with the Modernization Committee. As a matter of fact, the Modernization Committee's first committee report was the first committee report we produced using XPUB. And it has a whole different format. It's on letter-sized paper. It's in color. uses lots of pictures and graphs and all sorts of stuff. And it's really kind of an example of what we can do in the future. I've talked about congressional documents and the possibilities there as sort of three legs of a stool. So that first leg is having XPUB, having the software stack that really increases your flexibility. Second leg of the stool is having our new digital inkjet presses, which means that it's much easier for us to build documents that incorporate color or on different sized paper or things like that. And that third leg of the stool are things like the Modernization Committee indicia that sort of show that Congress is willing to take a look at their own operations and ask questions like, why does a committee report today look basically the same as it did when GPO opened its doors in 1862? I think you're going to see a lot of change over the course of this strategic plan over the next five years and really beyond as Congress reexamines its operations and leverages GPO's technical capabilities to deliver the kind of documents that Congress wants and I think their constituents want. Hugh Halpern is director of the Government Publishing Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. It's always great to talk with you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to the agency's strategic plan at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the chief human capital officer at the Department of Homeland Security. 
She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, 
You know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2 of Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.